I had a lot of subconscious beliefs about the the need to do things, the need to grow and learn and have capacity mm. uh, on my own. Mm. And I think that uh, that was holding me back, actually. Mm. That it was something I learned for for important reasons as I uh, as I grew up. Um, but now I'm in a in a phase where I, I lean a lot more heavily on um, what you could call social intelligence or social cognition, right? Accepting that I have a piece of the puzzle, but my piece of the puzzle um, is only valuable insofar as, as it's interacting with and dialoguing with other people's um, puzzle pieces. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Lawrence Wang, a friend of mine for quite a long time now and very wise individual. He also happens to work at MakerDAO, which is a very interesting cryptocurrency startup that is, well, you'll, f- you'll find out more about it in this interview that we did. And you'll not only find out more about cryptocurrency, but you'll also find more about stress, creativity, and the question that I like asking people, how does a spiritual practice make you more anti-fragile? And Lawrence had the best inter- answer to this question uh, that I have found so far. And he also has lots of things to say about cryptocurrency, about stress, about creativity. I think you really enjoy it. And I just want to let you guys know that I am doing a online course with Anders Jones, uh, the CEO of Facet Wealth, who raised $40 million in his Series A. We're going to be teaching startup founders the ins and outs of how to raise money for a seed stage or a Series A startup. Uh, we're going to have a lot of information in this online course, a lot of wisdom about how to do that, how to do that in the best way. Also, if you're a distributed company and want to learn how to build a distributed company, raise money for a distributed company, Anders has a lot of answers for you. Really excited to do this online course. If that sounds of interest to you, if you are a Series A or seed stage, uh, getting ready to and uh, raise money for your seed seed stage or your series A, go ahead and subscribe to my blog at stuartallsop.substack.com. That's S-T-E-W-A-R-T-A-L-S-O-P.substack.com. I will be including more information and links to the application. This is application only. I want to make sure the best startups are included uh, and... Yeah, and it, I just want to let you know that at if you do go through the course, there we will do pitch work in the course. So if you're if you're thinking about how do I make a pitch deck, how do I get this the information that investors want, uh, we will go over that. And if you, I don't want to you know promise this because this is really important. Uh, if the pitch is good, uh, then I will then I will send it to my network of investors that I've built up over the years. So if you're interested, please find my blog at stuartallsop.substack.com. Really hope you enjoy this episode. Please let me know your thoughts. Uh, Have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, My guest here is Lawrence Wang, uh, and really you're working at MakerDAO, which is an interesting company. Can you tell people a little bit more about what MakerDAO is? Yeah, sure. So um, we're a project on the Ethereum blockchain. We've been around for a few years, and we are a stablecoin, which is a cryptocurrency pegged to the US dollar. Um, stablecoins have been in the news lately because of, of the Libra project, you know, uh-huh. Facebook's big reveal. Um, they're also creating a stablecoin. Um, there's and a lot I could say there about Facebook, but it would be largely speculative since they haven't released that much yet. Interesting. Um, it's been interesting for us because for a while we've been positioned as one of the more stable and 
and mature and sort of regulator and government-friendly projects in a otherwise Wild West space. And now that you know Facebook and its whole consortium is moving to the space, now we're being positioned more as the the actually open permissionless alternative to something like Libra, which is actually, if you look at the details, not actually that open. Mm, very interesting. So I really want to talk about that, but let's uh, go to philosophy and uh, stress and creativity sure. and yeah. uh, what. How do you work with stress? What? How does stress show up in your life? Do you have stress? Yeah, um, I think of stress in really general, broad terms. Um, I think that the first time I, I got this really broad definition of stress, as opposed to a more specific medicalized definition, was um, way back in college when I encountered the art of living. Mm. And their whole philosophy was that um, any sort of health imbalance, any sort of sickness, um, was a result of some sort of stress. And so that could be physical stress, mental stress, emotional stress, relationship stress, anything that is out of alignment or causing some sort of... Um, experiential pressure, any, any sort of feeling of like, I don't like what's going on. Um, and that was a while ago. So since then, I've spent a lot of time um, thinking about how that shows up in my life and sort of the more sophisticated and nuanced and mature ways of dealing with it. Um, and so there's a way in which I'm, I'm sort of always attuned to the, the little stresses, which are no longer so much things to avoid as they are just signals of where I am in the world and should I move around or should I change something. Mm, interesting. Stress as a signal as to what to do. And this actually goes into pain as well because pain uh, uh, is a very evolutionarily old uh, mechanism that we have in our body. And it uh, is a the thing that pain science tells us is that it's a multi-system output. So that means that it rises from different systems, from the nervous system, from the viscera, from peripheral tissue and stuff like that. And so... And then the other thing is that it's a, a signaling mechanism. Uh, but the signal, because it's so old, it seems like it's not clear. It's, you have to do a lot of inquiry into order to figure out what the signal is when pain. And that also seems like it's important for stress as well. Um, how do you, uh, how do you figure this? What, how do you know what stress is trying to tell you when you experience stress in your life? What are some things that you do? What are some things that you use it to, uh, find the right path? Hmm. I want to say that it's it's not so much that the, the pain signal is itself objectively unclear or difficult to interpret, so much as that the modern context mm. is a lot more complicated mm. than the ancestral context. And so there are a lot more different causes, right? It used to be that it was more simple, right? If, if there was some severe pain, it was either because you were like extremely socially isolated or you were really hungry or really cold or you were you know, being chased by something that wanted to eat you. Mm. And now it's, it's a lot of very sophisticated things, right? Now it's like you've been on social media for too long or you're consuming too much marketing or you're working for a company that doesn't care about you. Or your you environment know. has some sort of pollutant in it. That right, wasn't there. right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. all mm. kinds of subtle chemical things as well. Mm. Very interesting. This kind of goes into what I've been reading from Robert Sapolsky in his book, Behave. Uh, and it's really interesting because if you look at the brains of people in... The hunter-gatherer tribes, you know, 150 is generally the number of, of social relationships. Mm -hmm. And now we're in cities with urban environments. And so this, and the rise of our frontal cortex was co-evolutionary with lar larger groups of people and determining social relationships and stuff like that. And now we're in cities where there's a lot of social relationships. And now we're in digital cities where there's even like way, way more relationships. And so sometimes I'm, I feel like, and now in business and my own experience of business, 
I'm realizing that a lot of business at a certain level is talking to other people and managing relationships mm. and things like that. And so it becomes very stressful for me to, uh, and I'm introverted in some sense as well, to maintain a lot of relationships with a lot of what seems like a lot more than 150 people. Yeah, absolutely. This is a sort of stress mm. um, because, our, like you're saying, our, our systems haven't been adapted to dealing with that many people. And so we're in adaptation basically right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how has that shown up in your life? Well, I think, you know, I always want to sort of ask the, the question in, in two directions. So so you, you said something there about wanting to, or implicitly at least, wanting wanting to be able to scale up your own capacity to have relationships past Dunbar's number. Mm-hmm. And so the opposite of that qu- question would be, how could I be successful in business while maintaining only the amount of relationships or the number of relationships that, that actually feels satisfying and, and good uh, to me? Interesting. Yeah, that's that's an I had never thought about that. So is that what you're trying to do, or what you're sh- showing up in your life? Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Um, you know, sort of as because you can look at at well, what am I trying to get from this success, mm. right? Um, and it, it could be when, when I unpack a little bit for myself, what I'm trying to get are certainly certain emotional needs met, mm. right? Like that, I want to be successful because I think being successful will um, bring me more esteem among my peers and people I care about, and that will you know, lead to more emotional satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So then, if in the course of trying to chase after that success, I'm depriving myself of emotional satisfaction, I may actually be self-defeating. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, but in business, uh, in some t- sorts of business, there might be a difference in terms of businesses as well. Uh, relationships become transactional at a certain point. So, if you're if you're a VC then the relationships are transactional because a VC is trying to find that one company that will be a billion dollar company. And if they meet with somebody who's not in that path, then it becomes, Mm. uh, and so that becomes the whole transaction. So, and this is something that I've been asking myself, can we have transactional relationships that are also meaningful? Is that possible? It's definitely possible. I think to some extent it's, it's sort of a a question of what kind of personality you have. Mm. Like some people just do transactional relationships, right? quick, superficial um, connections better and get more satisfaction out of it. And other people are more about smaller numbers of relationships that go deeper and are, are longer in time. Mm. And that brings up kind of like signal to noise. And it seems like signal to noise is completely subjective, as in like each person has to define their own signal and noise or find out what their own signal and sure. noise is. Do you yeah. th- or do you think there is objective signal and versus noise? It's, it's absolutely got to be relative to, to what you're looking for. Mm. What are you looking for in these days if you're, if you're open about it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there, there's a way in which my, my spiritual practice mm. has begun to sort of di- like consume the rest of my life mm. so that increasingly there's, there's this single lens. Um, like I was you know, meditating in the park earlier before I came here and this question popped up. Um, and the question was, what is Lawrence for? Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd never phrased it that way. Right? And it's, it's a way of sort of stepping outside of my ordinary identity where it's like, you know, I, I want this, I want that. To asking, what does the universe want this particular configuration of personality and atoms and so forth for? What is, what is a Lawrence for? What is a Lawrence meant to do in this world? Mm-hmm. You know, and can I ask that question, like, objectively? And so then if I navigate, not just from my personal sense of want this satisfaction, want this emotional need met, but also this curiosity of like, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to be doing here? You know, mm-hmm. 
it, it's very different. And what was it, it, oftentimes when I find myself asking those questions, uh, the answer is not immediate, and the answer is not intellectual. So it's 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 like it kind of like just shows up in my life like, for sure. And so what? It's only a short time since you asked that question, but what what's happened since then? Um, well, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so right? Lawrence yeah. is here for here doing this yeah. interview. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, exactly. Like I, like I, I went into this not really knowing what would happen, right? Mm-hmm. And I still don't know what hap- what's going to happen as I talk to you. Yeah. Um, but there's there's some hope that whatever comes up in this dialogue, you know, it'll go out onto the internet and someone else will respond to it, and they'll have some thoughts and reflections, and I, I might learn something from what they say either about myself or about the rest of the world or, or whatever it is. Mm. And that's been the most interesting thing about doing this is that I put something out there. I don't know. I have no idea what the effect is going to be. I have no idea what the effect what's going to be on somebody else's life. I hope that there is some sort of beneficial effect on the life, uh, but I don't know. It's unclear. It's unclear who watches it because most people on the internet are there lurking, basically not really, mm. not really interacting with the stuff that they, that they do. So it's hard to get that signal as to whether it is helping, but over time people have been starting to come to me and say like, Oh, this, this is how I view what you're saying. This is how it's impacted my life. And there is these really interesting downstream effects that are just starting to happen. And it's really cool. It's really joyful. You don't hear about the bad mm-hmm. stuff. Like I don't, I'm never, I'm never going to, I don't think I'm going to hear, Oh, I said something. And then this person took that and then changed their whole radi- life radically to it. And then, uh, ended up in a ridiculous situation. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm probably not going to hear about that, but it would be interesting to hear if that happens, but that's really how, what, what piece of content or what uh, have you read or what have you asked yourself recently besides what is the purpose of Lawrence uh, that has changed your life in a meaningful way? Mm. Well, there's a, there's a theme here and I don't know if there's a particular piece of content I can point to, but the theme here is, is about um, community building. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, kind of a buzzword people throw around, but it also feels like community building is, um, a stage in any project, right? Even in the project of an individual life, like we're, we're asking these questions of like, okay, I, I want to accomplish something in business. How do I balance my capacities with, with my goals? Right. And it seems like one of the ways that you do that as a human being specifically with the evolutionary program we have is you find other people who are thinking in the same way, you know, worst case, yes, you find your filter bubble, but, but best case you find something that is not quite a filter bubble, but it's still supportive of, of your aims and of helping you understand who you are, mm-hmm. right? People who can reflect to you things that you don't necessarily see about yourself positively, mm-hmm. right? And, and give you that extra momentum mm-hmm. to uncover things and keep moving forward. I think I've seen you post about it some sometime. Uh, the, there's when we start down this path of, of, of spiritual inquiry and, and meditation. There is often uh, uh, we hear positive uh, mindsets all the time, and 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 that can be uh, pathological sometimes, where we have a always positive mindset. Uh, so then we encounter that, and we're like, okay, so it can't be positive all the time. There is a negative side to life. Uh, we must be upfront about that. We must engage with that negative side of life. Negative, we, you know, what is negative? But I think it was you who posted that even though that's the case, it still makes sense to trend towards the positive, trend towards the optimism. Um, what do you think about that? There's, there's a happy medium to be struck there. And mm-hmm. I think it's like, it's a skill, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a metaphor in teaching and med- meditation that talks about um, tuning the mind as you might tune a guitar string, right? Mm-hmm. Not too tight, not too loose. So it's, it's a skill to approach things in life and figure out where is that uh, middle ground where you're not bypassing, you're not in denial about what's actually happening, right? But you're also 
not getting totally crushed by something and, and being stuck in a, a really negative frame of mind where you're just a victim and you're totally helpless, right? Like, okay, something that I don't like is happening. Mm-hmm. I accept that. And in the very next moment, I still have choice as to how I respond to that. Which brings up free will, which is one of the most interesting things I've thought about free will. And I talked about this with a guy named Nicholas Breisowitz Br- 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 uh, uh, yesterday uh, about free will. The only free will we have is a continuous orientation towards towards truth so like because mm-hmm. c- the the thing that's coming up is programmed uh but then i can essentially what i am what uh, the free will that i have can then orient itself to the truth in any given moment so a reaction comes up I, that reaction is probably programmed by my environment by my interactions with you by millions of years of genetics uh but then i have a choice in that moment it feels like i have a choice maybe i don't um what do you think um, it's hard for me to, to come down on the side of either there is free will or there is only a very pervasive illusion of free will. Mm-hmm. But in, in any case, um, at the very least, there seems to be ignorance about what will happen next. <laughs> and that's a kind of free will. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Can you explain more about that? In ignorance of what's about to happen or ignorance of, yeah, because we're in uncertainty, we're moving into uncertainty. And so there is not an ability to understand what will happen. In the next right. Moment. It's like, even, even if we don't actually have free will in the sense of, I can do whatever I want in the next moment, which seems to be true, right? I can't just snap my fingers and dissolve into nothingness or, or fly out of the room or whatever it is, or, you know, copy myself into to 10, 10 instances mm-hmm. of Lawrence. Um, I, I seem to be bounded, right, by, by laws. Um, but um, within those bounds, no one else has any idea what I'm going to do next. Mm-hmm. Right? I could sit in the chair, I could stand up, I could fall over, mm-hmm. you know, I could shout really loudly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is some kind of freedom there in that not knowing, even if there isn't full freedom of action. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. This gets into technology because I believe that we're about to, uh, what we thought were principles about the way the reality worked are about to change. And if they're changing, they're not really principles. Uh, so, I, and I think technology often does this. You know, it used to be a principle that we would not be able to move um, uh, across the ocean in a couple hours. And now we can move across the ocean in a couple hours and move a lot of people across the ocean in a couple hours. So that was something that was something that people thought was fixed. So technology changes that. Uh, changes what we think is fixed. I would say if it if it's changed, it's not really a principle. Exactly. I would say the principle there is that it's expensive to move across the ocean, and that's still true. We've just found ways to to pay for that, mm-hmm. right? Energetically pay for that, right? We've developed entire infrastructures of managing fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, and this is mm-hmm. just to jump in here. This this it. is a little bit of like a, my my uh, one of my what do I call it. Um, one of those itches I like to scratch. Um, one of my, not grievances necessarily, but ways in which I, I sort of try and position myself to, to, to bring some light to the blind spots of my current mm-hmm. civilization is mm-hmm. we don't really think about the, or at least it's very difficult to think about the, the true cost of things, mm-hmm. right? We think about the economic cost of this microphone, this drum, this table, right? This computer in terms of, of, how many hours of work we have to, to pay for it, right? But we are so distant from the the energetic and environmental work of it, right? The 
the mining of the materials and, and the shipping and, and the overall impact um, on the world of that. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to say, oh, well, we can just use our economics as a proxy for that because economics is tied in the political power, right? And so then the, the more politically powerful you are, like in the U.S., the more distorted your view of the actual economic and environmental impact is mm-hmm. because the more you're using your political power to to right, put resources. pressure on the on the supply chain to make things as cheap as possible mm-hmm. and you know you go far enough down the supply chain and then you end up with like you know coercion and slavery and that sort of thing that really distort the economic picture well interesting you've left me speechless <laughs> <laughs> uh it doesn't happen often but uh so where do we go from here then, knowing that we it's ignorance is uh, we can't look into all the externalities of all the all the decisions we make? I believe that technology in itself is not going to solve us, but it has to save us. But I believe that technology plus uh, technology plus ethics plus philosophy plus spirituality plus compassion are going to be the only option to save us. Basically, uh, um, what do you think? Yeah, I think we have to keep. Um increasing our capacity to to integrate more and more information about what we're actually doing what it's actually costing right um and and that is not just an an informational process in the sort of dry computational technological sense because you know as we've seen especially over the past few years with the internet and the rise of social media um information has an emotional cost right like information can be can be overwhelming or like um, emotionally harmful if people, you know, take in too much of it. It can be isolating or, you know, distracting from from the things that really matter to you in your own personal life. Mm. And so our capacity as a society to integrate more and more information also depends upon our capacity as a society to, like, uh, process the difficult emotions and things that have been sort of historically swept under the rug as they come up. Mm. Which gets into... Uh meditation techniques and psychedelics and these things that act on our doors of perception because really in order to have information come in the best way or the most effective way possible is to be able to uh, uh, change the doors of perception so that 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 information is not triggering as so it doesn't trigger something in me that causes me to have overwhelm what do you think i think that's one route um you know, a big shift for me in the in the past few years, um, I started doing this program that that my wife had done for me, that was about um, sort of meditation and and healing and and looking at the way we relate to people in conversation and digging deep into that, um, much more with an emphasis on on relationship to people. Like how how do I show up? And I can bring all the sort of same meditative frames and tools and goals, but instead of doing it on the cushion, eyes closed, I'm doing it while talking to someone else. Um, and what I've learned from that is I had a lot of, um, subconscious beliefs about the, the need to do things, the need to grow and learn and have capacity, uh, on my own. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, that was holding me back actually, mm-hmm. that it was something I learned for, for important reasons as I, uh, as I grew up. Um, but now I'm in a, in a phase where I, I lean a lot more heavily on um, what you could call social intelligence or social cognition, right? Accepting that I have a piece of the puzzle, but my piece of the puzzle um, is only valuable insofar as, as it's interacting with and dialoguing with other people's um, puzzle pieces. 
And that brings up a really interesting point. I like Stephen Covey's framework of moving from codependence, which is essentially kind of something we have to have in, when we're younger, and then it's to independence and then interdependence. Mm -hmm. um, and that really clear distinction between codependence and interdependence. How do you how do you view that codependence interdependence? What is the difference between codependence and interdependence? I've been reading a great book about this. Mm. Um, it's called Passionate Marriage. Mm. Um, it was written, I think, like in 1990, but it's still like pretty edgy. Mm. Um, it's by a guy named David Schnarch. Um, he's a therapist, and the word he uses is differentiation. Right. So we have this idea that you know either you're apart. Or you're together and like emotionally fused with someone and you know they get mad you get mad they get sad you get sad and it's all just like you know mixed together um, and his idea of differentiation is this it's this capacity you develop it's sort of part of the maturation process to still have your own center boundaries identity even while being intimate and close with someone else and that that I don't think that's something you learn without going through the crucible mm -hmm. of trying to be intimate with someone else and, and getting fused with them and feeling that to be very painful and then trying to learn where your boundaries are. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, and that, that idea of center is really interesting, something I've been playing with myself because uh, it doesn't feel like it's center in a location, although mm -hmm. there is a location in my body that I usually go to when I try to get mm -hmm. centered. Uh, it also feels like something else. Uh, what is that center to you? I think that center is the place where things are okay, mm. whatever that means for you, mm. right? Like the opposite of overwhelm. Like this is home. This is safety. Mm. Uh, this is I can relax. This is I know who I am and what I need, and and I, my needs are getting met. Mm. Um, and then from there, I can branch out into challenge and risk and and relationship. Yeah, and relationship. Mm -hmm. And this has been so key for me for integrating my own experiences of trauma because safety was the one thing that I was uh, didn't have on my own. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I needed to work with others in order to, for them to kind of basically uh, transmit a feeling of safety to me, show me how to create my own feelings of safety. And now I can create my own feeling of safety in pretty much every in any environment, which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, there are some environments where I do, don't feel safe uh, to this degree. And that seems like bringing something out of left field uh, into anti-fragility, essentially. Like, and this is the this is a question I often ask of like, what is the fu money uh, equivalent in spiritual practice, or like what what fu money for those who don't know is um, uh, once you've gotten enough money, ten million dollars, twenty million dollars, where you don't really need to take feedback in from other people. Uh, feedback from other people isn't related to income, um, uh, and so what is the spiritual equivalent of that? How do we become anti-fragile? And it feels like this kind of sense of safety, being, being able to provide, find that center and provide a sense of safety to ourselves in trying moments. And then also, I think that transmits to other people because if I'm feeling safe it, and if that feeling of safety is, is impactful enough, then it can then spread because we're social beings and stuff mm. like that. Mm. Yeah. I feel like there's probably a lot of different answers to that question. It, one of the things about spiritual practice is, you know, it's a long journey, right? A lot of stages. And depending on, on what stage you're at, the answer to a given question mm -hmm. is different. Yep. Um, and the question is different. Yeah. So, so one answer I have anyway uh, to that question, not the answer, is that the, the spiritual equivalent of, of FU money is surrender. Um, it's, it's actually like unpacking the whole question right mm -hmm. the whole idea of fu money is like 
I am separate from the world. I need to protect myself from it. I need to armor myself against it. And so once I have a sufficient amount of financial armor, then I will be safe. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the spiritual journey to a large extent is about unpacking that entire story. Right. I'm actually not separate from the world. Mm-hmm. Right. I if I if I trace my roots, you know, the origins of my body, of my thoughts, of my emotions, of my desires, it, it goes back into the world. Mm-hmm. And that apparent sense of separation over time goes away is is seen to be an illusion Mm -hmm. um and the more i do that the more i can begin to be comfortable with whatever's happening Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. that's a really good point uh while still also uh retaining my capacity to navigate within that it doesn't mean i have to like sit through something that's terrible right it means that i can trust that my relationship with the world is is active and open and alive so that if something is getting terrible i can notice and i can adjust and i can you know i can leave the room or whatever it is or say something and yeah that reminds me of when you said surrender and and you also earlier talked about essentially it's different for each person a lot of people when you begin this this happened to me when i began was that surrender was something i was not wanting i didn't want because i thought surrender meant surrender to another human being right and that's not at all what surrender is because oftentimes surrender to what we're experiencing means that you need to actually uh, uh, establish a boundary with someone and 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 not let something happen and and say something that needs to be said and things like that. How do you go about establishing? You know, this is kind of interdependence thing. Establishing boundaries and what is the role of boundaries? What uh, I'll explain something about my life recently. I've started to realize that energetic boundaries uh, are some of the most important uh so establishing an energetic boundary before a linguistic boundary or a a, Mm -hmm. and and just kind of and what does energetic boundary mean it might seem kind of woo to a lot of people but essentially recognizing that i am my own space that there is like a a membrane around me my skin and it separates me it allows certain things and allows other things and so kind of uh, recognizing that in the moment um, is one of the most helpful tools i have for uh, establishing boundaries Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly how it works, you know, in in a physical sense, but I, I have the same experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I you can talk about it, I think in terms of attention or awareness. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I've learned that habitually, I I used to send sort of all of my awareness mm-hmm. outside into the space around me. Like, I'd be tracking lots of movements and, and noises and. So then if there was a lot of movement and noise going on, it would, it would be very easy for me to be overwhelmed. And so I've had this experience of learning to kind of withdraw my attention, you know, into my body, um, into myself and my core, um, and just kind of leave it there, right? So that the external sounds and, and noise and movement is more distant, you know, it's more sort of muffled. And, and that often comes with a feeling of, of more safety, mm. right? Because I'm not so dependent on everything going around. There's a stability and a quiet in here. Mm-hmm. You just described very well uh, the uh, one of these steps, the eight steps of yoga called Pratyahara, which is the, it's they, they explain it as a turtle bringing its head back into its shell, oh. basically. Um, oh, great. Yeah, which is, yeah, it's very, very interesting. This is something interesting that a lot of people don't understand about meditation, that the word we use for meditation was actually used is a, a catch-all for a lot of different techniques that, that, that people who speak Sanskrit used. Uh, uh, one is asana, uh, the posture, the way that you sit. Mm. Uh, one is pratyahara, that ability to mm. withdraw the attention in. 
um, and not be, uh, and then dharana, which is concentration, which is the traditional thing that most people think is meditation, which is a technique that we concentrate on an object of consciousness, an object of meditation for a long period of time. And then the hope is that we slip into uh, uh, dhyana or samadhi, um, mm. which are meditation in the true sense, which is a state that is not, cannot be attained, but something that is, comes upon us when the conditions are right. Hmm. What is your view on meditation? It's a very broad question. <laughs> <laughs> How, when you were in the park and just now uh, meditating, what happened? Um, so like I mentioned, I've, I've had some sniffles um, today, a little bit of an allergic mm-hmm. reaction left over from yesterday. And so I was, I was looking for some physical stability. I didn't want to be sniffling through this entire podcast. Um, so I was just looking for a place to sit where it felt like I could just like let the system calm down a little mm. bit. Um, and so initially I, I started in a in a sort of more wide open sunlit part of the park and I was doing a little bit of qigong, sort of shaking and moving the arms around, stretches. Um, but it was pretty windy there and after I finished my sort of more dynamic stuff, I wanted to sit. I went over to a little grove of trees where it was a bit more sheltered, still some sunlight coming through. And, and that was a more comfortable place to just sit down mm. and, and go more inward. Mm. Um, so what am I doing? I'm, I'm not these days so much focusing on any particular practice, like, okay, focusing on the you know bridge of the nose or whatever it is, or fo- focusing on the breath. All of that kind of is happening um, in a natural way. Mm. Um, I'm not at a place with my meditation now where I'm trying to get to any particular state so much as I am just like, there's always some opportunity in meditation to come back home mm. to, to notice something that's maybe been a little bit overextended or a little bit too far out there and, and bring it back. Mm. And what is the role of technique in that? Um, I think it's like the role of technique in anything. So there's a, there's a model that I think comes from Japanese martial arts called shuhari of learning. And shu is when you just learn technique. You just learn form. And you just drill and drill and drill. right? And it takes you from this sort of, I don't know what I'm doing, into at least I can do these three things well. right? There's a sense of, of clarity about what I'm doing. There's a sense of mastery and progress. Um, and then there's the, the uh, ha phase which is where I begin to rebel against that. It seems too constricting and I, I want to throw it all away and, and burn it. Um, and then finally there's, you know, that's synthesis, antithesis, and then, or sorry, uh, thesis, antithesis, and, and then re is synthesis, where then I, I realize that this, this whole thing has been part of the journey, right? Both learning the forms and the structures and then learning to go beyond them. And, and now that I've seen that arc, I can begin to be creative. I have the foundation of the forms. So I actually know what I'm talking about, right? I have a vocabulary in a given domain. Um, but then I can see where their limitations are and I can begin to build upon that and maybe even come up with something that can then be offered to the next generation mm-hmm. of students. Create new knowledge, essentially new or new yeah. wisdom, new, new, new technique. Uh, yeah. and this is, this is the interesting thing. Once you get to that creative aspect, you can, you can, the options are seemingly limitless for the new, uh, variation and new, um, connections that can be made. So I'll give an example from my personal life recently. I do a lot of dancing, a lot of partner dancing. Um, and uh, partner dancing is very complicated and it's re- it, 
seems to be very, very helpful to get lots of instruction in how to do it at the beginning because you're dealing with a lot of different things. You're dealing with musicality in your own body. You're dealing with rhythm, rhythm, which is related to musicality. Uh, you're dealing with the movement of your own body. You're moving with both your steps and your hands. So you're moving all four limbs in a, a very different way. Um, and you're also moving with a partner and both listening to that partner. And then also if you're leading, um, leading that partner, but then also paying attention to the fault. So it's just like, it's like the most complex thing that I've ever done before. Uh, and, and now I've been doing it for about a year and a half pretty regularly. And I was dancing with somebody the other day and I did a move I had never done before. And it just, I didn't think about it. It just happened. Like, and it was like so interesting because that had never happened. I mean, it had, it shows up in conversation, but, but that had never happened in my body. I never felt that experience that like, this move just happened. I didn't see it anywhere. It just kind of happened. It just was created. Uh, and I don't know where it came from, but it, it was there. It was really cool. I don't know. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. I don't really have a question from that. But. Yeah. It, it reminds you of this, this experience I had snowboarding mm. where there is a sense that, you know, when you first learn, you learn in, in a very sort of crude binary way. This is a heel side turn. This is a toe side turn. Right. Um, so you can think of it as, okay, I'm learning to snowboard. There's only two things I can do. Right, heel side, toe side. Mm. Um, but then, yeah. then you can you can begin to break that down into further binaries, right? Then there's there's degrees of toe side and heel side. Mm. Then there's toe side and heel side. But is there weight more forward or more mm. back? Right, and it's a sense of like you learn you learn something by starting with a a single binary. I guess a very Taoist way of looking at mm. it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then as you become familiar with that binary and it gets begins to get a little bit boring, then you add another binary. Mm. And now you have four possibilities that you get to familiarize yourself with. And then you get eight and so on and so forth. Mm. Until you, then you have a whole fluid space of, of action. Which again gets back to a metaphor for life because with life it's, it includes all of that and then like more. Uh, and each kind of moment we're in this moment we're like trying to over and over and over again, figure out where I'm at, what, what the hell's going on, what, you know, and like, and this goes down to a neurological level as well. Like the amygdala is always processing all of our information all the time for signs of what we should fear and what we should be afraid of. It's on all the time. There's no, there's no time where it's not on and not processing information, but the connection between the amygdala and the, and the, and the, the frontal cortex or conscious experience of being aware is not necessarily straightforward and, and, and is not clear what I am afraid of right now and how that's showing up in my conscious, like the conscious mind is made up to, make post facto uh, after the fact uh, rationalizations of my behavior that happened as a process of, of this kind of like deeper processes and stuff like that more and more it was really interesting so i would love to continue talking about this but i also want to talk about like technology because it feels like uh, uh you are in a space that's really interesting and uh and impactful and also like not necessarily unrelated to what we're talking about here one of the, the questions I, I've been researching in this podcast is the relationship between technology and spirituality. And uh, buzzwords that are thrown around are decentralization, centralization. <laughs> also applicable for meditation, also applicable for lived experience. We have centralization. I am centralized in this, in this being, but then we have decentralization, which is I am not just this person. I am not just this skin. I am not just this, this one individual. I'm everything inside of me was once a part of everything else. Mm. Uh, which goes into cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain and, and, and centralization. And, and uh, I don't understand exactly what, um, what the company you're, you're, you're working for. I don't understand what a stablecoin is. Um, what, what is a stablecoin? A stablecoin is a cryptocurrency that's, that's pegged to a fiat currency. So our stablecoin is called DAI, D-A-I, mm. and one DAI equals one U.S. dollar. Mm. And why is that important that you have a, a, a stable currency that is separate from the dollar that represents the dollar? 
right? So, so one of the current narratives about Bitcoin, for example, the granddaddy of all cryptocurrencies, is that it's very volatile because it is very volatile, and so that uh, limits the degree to which it can be used for practical purposes, right? If you're going to do payroll or invoicing, right, real bread and butter business tasks with it, you can't because you don't actually know how much it's worth from week to week. And that's an incentive not to use it for those things. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of a stablecoin is that it's it's an easier transition mm-hmm. if you want to potentially get some of the benefits of cryptocurrency, some of the, the transparency ah. and so forth, or access to um, apps built on the Ethereum blockchain, um, but still not have to deal with volatility. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So uh, why? what are the use cases where I would want, instead of having a US dollar, have a DAI? Well, one of them, I mean... Is, is if you just have trouble getting access to ordinary U.S. dollars. Mm. So, for example, Interesting. Um, some of uh, my colleagues in Latin America, they're actually using DAI um, for day-to-day expenses, right? Because, because mm. to, to get into USD, USD or mm. some proxy of USD, like our stablecoin, is yeah a lot more uh, stable than their, their own local currency. Interesting. And that, this reflects my own experience when I was traveling around Cambodia. Cambodia, the de facto currency is the U.S. dollar mm-hmm. because the, 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 their currency is so is like Bitcoin, is, is volatile. Uh, so they want to hold their... So that's really... I never realized that before. So it allows other... And this is interesting because it gets into Libra. What Libra offers is their coin is going to be backed by a, a basket of different mm-hmm. currencies, which makes me think that they are trying to establish a global, the next global reserve currency, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very bold move, I uh, think, if you if you look at the long-term implications of it. Uh, interesting. Okay, so, and so people in other countries use DAI in order to um, uh, peg their, put their currency into something safer than their local currency. You said something about Ethereum dApps, uh, using Ethereum dApps. Are there any apps that you're using in your daily life? That DAI help you to use? No. Not yet. Okay. No, yeah. yeah. It's, it's still pretty early days. Yeah. Interesting. Anything interesting in that in that sector? Um, there's there's Augur, which is mm-hmm. a prediction market. Mm-hmm. Have you used it yet? Um, I haven't personally used it. I've okay. just poked around. Yeah. Um, there's a number of what you call what they call DeFi or decentralized finance apps now, right? If you if you want some some access to credit, for example, mm-hmm. um, but for for whatever reason the traditional system isn't available to you. Um, there's an app called Compound Finance that offers loans and a few other ones. Mm-hmm. And are the rates better in that, or or do you know? Mm, it depends. Okay, it depends yeah. on 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 credit. Does it depend? What what does it depend on? Depends on a lot of esoteric things that I, I'm not the expert on. Okay, right, interesting. Yeah. I want to I'll ask you later who, who to talk to for that because I'm really interested because it does it does seem like we've had we've had like last year in cryptocurrency we had we had just like. Everything's going to happen. We're going to build everything mm-hmm. on this thing because it's all going to work and it's all going to be ma- magical and then crash. And then now it's like Bitcoin's great and DAI is great. And those are the, like, those are the two things that, that are, that are like, okay, those, that's interesting. And then there's a whole bunch of projects that might be great in like five to 10 years or something right. like that. Right. It really is still early days, um, for, for Ethereum. You know, they're still working out like how to do layer two scalability. Um, what still, is layer two scalability? So, so layer one, right, is is just the blockchain as we know it. Mm. Um, Bitcoin is also doing this, um, and the right the the point of a blockchain is that it is a very slow and expensive computer because it has um, consensus properties that you can't really get any other way. Um, and so, layer one is is that sort of ironclad guarantee of those 
strong consensus properties that we have a bunch of people in a network who don't necessarily agree with each other or like each other but somehow they all come to the same agreement about what what the state of reality is mm-hmm. um but by nature that's slow and expensive um so layer two is this idea of we're going to have a, a a second network layer that is sort of tied to the first one that kind of checkpoints back to it to tie into the underlying reality but doesn't do it so often so we can do more transactions per second that second layer really interesting yeah and so that is not solved yet. Mm-mm. Yeah, there's there's a few prototypes in progress. Although, I guess I haven't kept too up to date on it. But Bitcoin's layer two solution is called uh, the Lightning Network, mm. and I guess that's growing pretty well. Mm. Okay, interesting. And so Bitcoin has its own. And where where does Dai fit into that? Where does uh, uh, where does where does that fit into layer two or layer one? Um, so right now we're we're built on layer one. Okay. Right. One of the reasons um, you hear so much about MakerDAO and Dai is because it's it's one of the the few apps so far that's that makes economic sense mm. on layer one, mm. right? Because layer one is so so slow and expensive, the only apps that make economic sense on it are, are the ones whose individual transactions um, have so much economic value that the transaction fees are worth it. Mm. Okay, well, you're like making everything clear, which is really uh, really great. You're technical, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm at, at it. So it's really interesting to get this perspective. Um, what is the biggest promise uh, for this technology? The the biggest promise, oh my goodness, um, I think the biggest promise is is that because it gives us this possibility for a group of actors to agree upon reality with no single one of them being in control, um, the ways in which society can can coordinate groups. Um, there, there are a lot of new ways that we can explore that I don't think we've totally wrapped our heads around yet. Whoa. Um, which kind of gets into your point earlier that you made that I, that I wasn't able to talk to about power differentials and then slavery uh, coming out as a, as a factor of that. Mm. And then this seems like it's the opposite of that, basically, because no, no one party can gain control of the entire network. So no one party develops that incentive to change perception of truth or change what truth looks like. Well... You know, blockchain in itself doesn't doesn't solve that problem. Mm. The hope is that it helps address that problem mm. by by making it easier to be transparent about what's actually going on. Mm. So there's a few projects working on blockchain for supply chain, for example. And um, I don't know how much you know about supply chain, but right, basically everything that is built has a supply chain behind it, which is a, is a network of suppliers of all the different parts. Like, where does the metal come from? Where do, who makes the wires? Right? Who makes the LEDs? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and who gets the the raw material from all those things from from mines? Right, and so it's it starts out with a big multinational corporation making the final products and having the marketing departments and everything, and then it goes to smaller companies, maybe in China, right, who just build like one kind of widget and who only sell to companies, mm-hmm. right, and then that that company in turn maybe has a dozens of or if not hundreds of suppliers for their raw materials or their component parts, right, and maybe it's just a guy in a shop somewhere mm-hmm. or like Starbucks, right, you know makes makes coffee and they have a whole um, company for running the stores but somewhere down there way way down in the supply chain is the farmer right making coffee beans and and that farmer um, doesn't have a lot of access to credit doesn't have a lot of like economic literacy right um, and so these these farmers are getting paid um, by invoices 60 90 180 day invoices um, and so Starbucks the the top of the supply chain has all this leverage because right, they get the product immediately, but they they only pay you like you know x number of months later. Uh, uh, 
And so sometimes these farmers, you know, they're they're going through their own um, economic or environmental ripples, and they're they're short on cash, and so that all they have is loan sharks. Mm-hmm. So one of the potentials for supply chain um, blockchain is that if we make that whole thing more transparent, then um, investors or whoever can get value all the way down there without right. without them without them having to go to a loan shark basically right exactly mm-hmm. they can say okay this farmer has a record of being reliable i'm gonna you know give you good terms for a loan so how does someone put that information on a blockchain well it's the, the same way they put any other information into a computer okay. right? they've, they've got to do a manually at some point which is why it's, it's not a panacea uh, you know yeah. like someone's actually got to do the, the footwork of like convincing people to use this mm-hmm. And I think one of my friends on, on Twitter, virtual friends, is, is doing something like that. She's going to Africa and somehow, uh, like with big shipments of rice, rice and stuff like that, I think she's putting it on. Or she's somehow trying to incentivize people to do that, basically, mm, which cool. is really interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a conversation with her. I, what I want to have a conversation with her, she's from Singapore. She's building this, this, this supply chain thing in Africa and Rwanda. And what I want to talk with her is the global rise of technology, uh, global rise of technology production, uh, which is something that has historically been based here. But with things like what you're talking about is, I think, now about to be decentralized to major urban environments, not not even urban environments, any 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 environment which is connected to the Internet. So, like, I can go off into the woods and as long as I'm still connected to the Internet, the thought the thought stream of the Internet, I can create these things and and, uh, collaborate with other people. Um, What do you think about this? Hmm. So when you say technology production, I think you're focusing more on like, uh, like internet technology production. Uh, because yeah, maybe hardware is not going to be yeah. yeah. So yeah, so software businesses, uh, things that don't have a necessity to work in person uh, on a physical good. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That that's going to distribute out to wherever is is the cheapest. Mm-hmm. You know, where you can still get the work done. Mm-hmm. And, but it feels like not only the cheapest, but also the access to people who have a certain attitude about the way technology works, which used to only exist here because of the sharing of ideas that was, was common here, which was like, I'm, you know, I'm building this company, you're building that company, or even, they might even be slightly competitive, but we're going to talk to each other to kind of figure out what, what's going on. That now happens on the internet, for example, right now. We're, we're the, the things that we have access to because we're here are now spread to, to, mm-hmm. to, to my friends and like wherever, you know, like, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, it seems like not only cost, but also just access to information in a particular language. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, MakerDAO is a great example of that. We're 100 people about and we're in probably 30 different locations. Whoa. Yeah. Interesting. And you guys are remote, distributed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And had you worked at a distributed company before that? Um, I mean, this is the largest scale at which I've done it. The last company I did it at, I was managing a team of, of five engineers, and each of them was in a different location. Mm-hmm. But now I'm managing a team that's twice the size, and each of them is still in a different location. Interesting. And how have you adapted to the distributed work? Do you like it better? Do you not like it? It's tough. Yeah. It's tough, especially mm-hmm. when people are in time zones all over the world. Yeah. You know, it's basically impossible to get everyone in a meeting together because someone's always they should be sleeping which i think is actually a good thing because i hate meetings <laughs> i hate unnecessary meetings i, I yeah. really enjoy necessary meetings but unnecessary meetings are and so that seems like a good constraint i don't know what do you think you know it's it's funny like this environment that I, i'm in right now is is the environment that i like really wanted when i was like 25 uh, yeah. um but since that point um i've come to value uh the the human relationship aspect of work more mm-hmm. and, and the, the sort of soft skills part of it and, and the way in which, you know, trust and, and connection among a team 
is is built in a lot of intangible ways over time, mm-hmm. like through non-directed communication and through like bumping into people, you know. Mm-hmm. Over the and you don't, you don't get that in voice no, chat. I don't, I don't get that. Chat. No, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we we try and set up sometimes mm-hmm. that are semi-casual, but just the fact of you know you yeah. having to go to voice chat it makes it not right, casual. It makes it more formal. Yeah. Um, Something that's funny with me, because I do about half of my interviews remotely now, um, and I actually do most of my coaching remotely. So mm-hmm. I, have, I have three, I have four people that I work with. One's a massage therapist, uh, and that has to be in, in, in person. I don't think that's ever going to change. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, uh, the other three are, are, are all remote, all distributed. One's in Australia, one's in Berlin, and another one's in Israel. Um, and so uh, uh, all of that happens remotely. All of the, like, the spiritual work guided work that I'm doing is with a teacher who's not co-located with me. And I've actually never met before uh, in person. Uh, and I'm starting to notice no, no difference. Uh, uh, there is an intimacy. Like right now there is an intimacy that is, that is ineffable, that is, that is there, that does contribute to something, but it isn't necessary. Um, and the more I get used to this other kind of intimacy, I don't know what it is, connection, uh, the the easier it is, and I, I'm finding that the remote work, remote interviews are basically just as good. I'd be really curious to hear what my listeners think and like what they what whether they notice a difference if it's if it's recorded remotely or not. But I think it's just a matter of getting used to it, and I do think this is a metaphor for kind of where we're headed, which in terms of like most of our thought space is already online anyway. Most of our individual thought space for most people in urban environments is now primarily mediated through the internet, unless you're in person. Um, and so it's kind of like moving that way and it can be very stressful to adapt to it, but maybe there are some benefits to it, although probably not for our eyes, probably not for like, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, time will tell. Yeah. Right. We're definitely developing a new culture and, and time mm-hmm. will tell like if the things that we're leaving behind, uh, end up just being vestigial or if they end up being really important, uh-huh. right? Like, like what does it mean that I, I can't ever have a meal with someone, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that's you know, something that in our, our ancestral history has, has been a, a deep source of bonding. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we leave it behind and it, it nets out fine. I don't know. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Remote work. What is the biggest problems besides the sense you don't get the sense of comfort? What is, what is the biggest comfort that, or what you know, connection? Sorry. Well, what is the biggest uh, problem that you're facing? I mean, it, the asynchronous nature of remote work yeah. requires a different kind of discipline mm-hmm. than when everyone's, even when everyone's just in the same time zone, it's easier. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Because you really have to be more committed to written communication. And for some people, you know, who grew up in chat rooms, that's very natural. Mm-hmm. And for other people, it takes a lot of adaptation. Well, I think I think there are actually solutions now for that. Uh, so I've, I've, in my own life, I've started not to rely on text and rely more on voice messages, sending voice messages mm-hmm. to people. Um, if Facebook is annoying because it only allows me to make one-minute videos, and then it doesn't tell me when the one minute is over, mm-hmm. so it cuts off most of my conversation. Mm-hmm. But Discord is another thing. Maybe you guys want to look into it. It's like Discord uh, is voice chat, uh, basically, uh, voice messaging that you can use. Uh, and then also another uh, tool, Loom, uh, where you can make videos uh, with a your face in a little circle on the top and then a screen share for the most video. You make little one, two-minute clips. Um, that those are all helpful ways to get around that, that message thing, because I'm starting to realize the low bandwidth of texting and other things and the importance of more high bandwidth, high, high, like emotional output that Mm -hmm. a bit of video or voice can get. Well, thank you so much. This has been an honor and pleasure. And I really, uh, if there's, is there anything else you want to end with? Uh, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. Cool. It's been a lot of fun for me too. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Lawrence Wang. Uh, really would love to hear your thoughts. I'm on Twitter at Stuart Allsop, I, 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 please 
tweet about this to me. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, and of course, if you want to join the online course, if you're a startup founder who's raising their seed stage or series A, please find my blog at stuartalsop.substack.com and I will be sending more information about how you can apply for that course. Uh, really excited to be offering this course, course with Anders Jones, who's raised $40 million. I just did a very mini interview, which I released last week uh, of with Anders. I got to see him face to face and we got a lot of interesting information out there. Um, he has an interesting raise. He raised $40 million. It's like a huge series A. Uh, so definitely has some wisdom to share. Um, a lot of it's about social proof. And so we'll be going into, into that social proof, how you can present the best version of your company to potential investors. So please join us. It will be application only. Uh, and just so you know, I, I release new episodes every Monday and Friday. I will have some special content coming out. I'm doing so many interviews that that it's just uh, a Got to start <laughs> publishing them. Uh, so yeah, I hope, hope, hope you have a great day. Please let me know your thoughts. Have a great day.